So, uh, if you have any questions at all, yes. I have one question that I want to ask you long before, and in, in your last video. When you understood that the When do you know? Oh, oh. Um. Hi. <laughs> so, this is a Swami gate. Um, it's gradual. It's like, it reminds me of that line from the Beach Boys song, Don't worry, baby. Well, it's been building up inside of me for, oh, I don't know how long. <laughs> um, well, to be honest, because what's the alternative? Um, Krishna... I'll explain very briefly my story. Do, you, do any of you remember that really funny movie that had devotees in it? It was called Airplane? Yes. yes. It came, well, it was before your time. It came out, um, I guess, I don't know how many years ago, 30 years ago or 40? The 80s. 80s, yeah. Anyway, on that airplane, it was a really funny movie. On the plane, there was one guy that kept driving other passengers to suicide by telling his life story. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> so I don't want to do that, but um, <laughs> you know, people that when they're not invited, they just want to tell you the story of their life, and it's it's like anyway. So there was a time when I was younger, uh, younger, that uh, <laughs> when I was very what's the word? What they say in America? Straight arrow just company man, just, you know, never doubted anything, never questioned anything. And, uh, what? A good GBC man. Actually, I, I, we built up, with Prabhupada's mercy, one of the most successful GBC zones in the history of ISKCON. We were international book distribution champions, Bhakta program champion. I mean, we were, it was, yeah, it was one of the great, one of the most successful zones in ISKCON history. So, it's not that I necessarily was like madly in love with my dhoti, but we, you know, it's sort of we learned to coexist. But the idea was that when you first join, when you first join a spiritual movement or religious movement, and often, really, this is general human psychology. Uh oh. Well, here's the non-lecture. This is just, um, this is sort of general human psychology that when someone has a, a, a strong conversion experience, and it can be a religious conversion, a political conversion, uh, it can be an emotional conversion, uh, it can be many kinds of things, cultural. But when people have these strong conversion experiences, what social science tells us and what we know from our own common sense and experience is that there's a tendency, I would say especially 
in a sort of a powerful religious conversion, in any religion, doesn't matter what religion, when someone has a powerful conversion, especially if you're young also, if you're young and you have a strong religious conversion experience, there's a tendency to think that um, I misunderstood everything. Everything I thought was true was actually illusion. And now I understand everything for the first time. So, um, so in that state, in that particular psychological state, which of course, I mean, it's not entirely true. For example, like Mark Twain, there's a famous American writer, Mark Twain, who once said that when I was young, I realized that my parents didn't understand anything. And so I left home. And I came back years later, a few years later, and I was amazed at how much they had learned in my absence. <laughs> so, I mean, I joined the Hare Krishna movement when I was 20 years old. And as, as we know, uh, a 20-year-old male, uh, his brain is not very developed. I mean, the girls already know this. <laughs> because they have to go out with these guys. So, so because I, I joined Krishna Consciousness at that young age, um, I, I had that, it was such a powerful experience that I was in darkness and now I, I see the light, that um, I, I sort of rejected everything that I thought was true unless something was in Prabhupada's books or unless some devotee told me that Prabhupada had said something, then you know, I had to question everything. And so, even because after all, even the status of the world, like you look out through your eyes and you see the world, but what am I really seeing? Well, according to the Bhagavad Gita. So, so you have that powerful experience where you sort of doubt everything. It's like those bumper stickers that say, question authority. Of course, the first authority you should question is that bumper sticker. But anyway, so you, you have this experience, many devotees had it, and you, and you the only thing I can really trust, the only reliable fact, is what I've learned in this spiritual movement that I joined. Of course, as I got older, I realized that actually I had very good parents and they taught me a lot of very useful things. But, you know, that comes later. So, so in that state, if they tell you, for example, you, you have to wear these clothes, or you have to go on the street and dance in a certain way. Because, you know, in the early days of the movement, there's, only, there's one and only one bona fide way to dance. There's only one bona fide way to play the cartels. There's only one bona fide way to cut an apple, which is, I learned, you know, about day two, I think, in the Hare Krishna temple. I was chastised by the temple president's wife because I did not cut the apple. And there's, a, there's a Vedic way of cutting an apple. And I... So anyway, it's one of my early offenses. <laughs> so, so in that state, Krishna consciousness is just a package. It's a package deal. It's like 
you know, if you buy a car, it comes with four doors or two doors and a motor, and, and you, you know, that's just the car. You, you want it or you don't want it. So Krishna consciousness is just this package deal, as they say. And, you know, and, and it's working. I'm actually coming to higher consciousness. And uh, so therefore, I assume that every detail of what I'm doing is perfect. Because the package is working as a package. So, again, this is the psychology of a young convert, that you don't question anything. And so, uh, and then something else happens, I believe. Especially in a case like ours, where one goes out in public dressed in a way which, at least in the Western world, is extremely exotic, to use sort of neutral language. It's, um, and of course, the public reacts by coming to what they feel is a perfectly rational conclusion that we're crazy. I mean, they feel it's a perfectly rational conclusion. They have sufficient evidence. And, of course, and so how do we respond? We respond by coming to what we believe is a personal, perfectly rational conclusion. No, actually, they're crazy. And there's even an early Hare Krishna pamphlet, I think, called Who is Crazy or something. And so, yeah, I don't think we have the final answer yet. But anyway, so... <laughs> but the point here is that, it's just, I, I gave this example. It, it's like there are certain physical responses, physiological responses, which are not conscious. Like, for example, when the doctor... Uh, you know, raise your hand if you're a doctor. Okay, I'm just kidding. If you, <laughs> it's like, it's like when you when you hit the knee, you know that that response. It's not something you choose to do. It's just your body does it. Or I, I, I gave the example that uh, if you touch, sometimes you touch a hot object, and your hand pulls away before you realize that you that it's hot. And so there are all these automatic responses, and the nervous system also has some automatic responses. Because not only do, you know, say that the, the hands protect themselves or, you know, some, you know there, there are these automatic motions that we don't think about. So the, the, the emotions and the nervous system, you know, the, the emotional part of the nervous system also has ways of protecting itself, which are just automatic responses. So when you are in a society where a very large number of people think that you're crazy, uh, there are certain automatic psychological responses which we don't choose but which become they're automatic and like for example and, and studies have shown this if you study the psychology of marginalized communities or communities that believe they have been marginalized or they have been uh, somehow humiliated or something or, or subjugated that you see, there, there's really two responses. Either you surrender to the oppressor or you surrender to the people who are uh, marginalizing you or you protect yourself by um, marginalizing them. And so we can actually see in many religious movements, especially religious movements that tend to externally really separate themselves from mainstream culture. 
we see this very typical response of sort of demonizing or marginalizing the world. And because that's how people protect themselves. And so, uh, plus, and the reason I think it's worth talking about this is because uh, there's a certain blind uh, acceptance of tradition. You know, Fiddler on the Roof, tradition, tradition, right? Anyone want to sing that? No? Okay. <laughs> so, human beings are neurologically programmed. It's like neuroprogramming so that if something is done long enough, it becomes sacred. It's just like, for example, men wear these ties, at least in you know northern European countries and in America, they wear these ties, and they're very uncomfortable, and they're not particularly necessary, but you have to wear a tie. And women have to permanently damage their bodies by wearing these high heels, which is, you know, it's very irrational. It damages the body in many ways, but somehow they're supposed to... And then they... Anyway, I won't go into all the details of modern madness, but if something has just been done long enough, like, for example, every country has a flag. America has a flag. So there's nothing particularly absolute. It's just a design some people came up with a few centuries ago. But now, tradition has made it a sacred object. And you could see how if human beings didn't have that programming, uh, society would, civilization would be almost impossible. Because in order to escape barbarism and savagery, America is now returning to barbarism and savagery, but that's another point. But these things go in cycles, I guess. Civilization goes in cycles. This is just not our year. So, but unless human beings were wired that way, uh, there wouldn't be stability. You couldn't have uh, you couldn't have cumulative knowledge where people build on what was already done and you couldn't even organize human beings you couldn't have unless people for example are loyal to a state or a flag or a certain national entity unless they agree that certain ways of behaving are the proper ways to behave even though they may not really be intrinsically beneficial but it's just the way we do things here you can see that without that neuro-programming, uh, you couldn't, in a sense, really have civilization. And so it, it is a fact that, that as people repeat things, it just becomes the way to do it. it. It takes on sort of this blind authority, whether or not it's beneficial. And the same is true in religious societies, because in religious societies also, uh, there's a lot of conditioning that still exists. It's like, let's say you love to eat. You love to eat. Let's say you love pizza. And then you join the Hare Krishna movement. Well, you just offer your pizza to Krishna, right? I mean, if, if you really like to eat, and that's what Prabhupada said, that's why Prabhupada cooked all these nice preparations, because, okay, you like to eat, eat prasadam. He called that dovetailing. So, if you're a conditioned soul and you want to lord it over the material world, you don't stop becoming a conditioned soul just because you join a movement. You, you can make progress. You certainly start on the path to becoming a pure soul, but it takes time. 
And so there's all this conditioning that gets mixed in with the spiritual science. So going back to my tender youth and Krishna consciousness, so because I joined the movement, it was working fantastically for me in the sense of coming to higher consciousness and really uh, staying, you know, and advancing and coming to higher and higher states of consciousness. And the movement was growing, it was expanding. And so no one argues with success. No one argues with success. So I took sannyas at the mature age of 23. <laughs> I always say I had the honor of being a sannyasi before my brain fully formed, which explains some of the things we did back then. So <laughs> but anyway, so I took sannyas, and then in, in 1974, Prabhupada um, put me in charge of about 20 countries. Or more, actually, maybe like 25 countries. And so, it, all Latin Americans. So the movement just grew. It was a Hare Krishna explosion. That, because 1974 in Latin America was sort of 1968 in North America. And so it was like, you know, if you know surfing, anyone here know about surfing? So, uh, yeah, you have to catch the wave just at the right moment, right? There, you know, it, we know the wave has a certain arc, and you've just got to catch it when it snaps. And so, um, so we caught the wave. So the movement grew, like, it just explosively. So here I am. I'm a young guy. I became GBC when I was 25 years old. And um, everything's working. Everything's working perfectly. Everything's growing. We're winning. It's like they say, if your team's winning, don't change anything. If your team's losing, then you've got to figure out what to do. But if you're winning, you just keep doing the same thing. Just keep playing. So at that point, also, at that point, it was just not part of the Hare Krishna movement to, to study. We just, you just read Prabhupada's books. Even though... Again, that was our immature interpretation of Prabhupada because Prabhupada had ordered me in 1969 to get a good education so that I could present Krishna consciousness to other educated people. He, he didn't say to me, just read my books. He said, you need a good education. So, for example, no one studied Vaishnav history. No one studied the history of India. No one studied social science because universities were... Slaughterhouses, right? <laughs> I mean, in a sense, they are, but in a sense, they're not. They're also centers of very valuable knowledge, if you take it the right way. So, so in that atmosphere, uh, when you don't study, you have no sense. There, there's no question of trying to get an objective perspective on the Hare Krishna movement because there's no real place outside the movement to stand from which you can look. Because at the present time, we are standing in the only legitimate observation point. So you can't go outside the movement, and within the movement, there is no intellectual space for anything like you know, that kind of independent thinking. Now, you know, in case someone thinks this is cultish, this is exactly what goes on in the universities. Let's say you are in a religious studies department. 
or a history department, or philosophy, I mean, they're really bad. Let's say you're in a philosophy department. They have certain doctrines. They have certain unproved and unprovable beginning assumptions. For example, take geometry. If we say in geometry, given a, an isosceles triangle, and, and then, you know, and, and, and one, one uh, you know, angles this. In geometry, you're given some information, and then you have to solve a problem. If, if you're not given, so in academia, academia does very, very little what is called meta-thinking. Meta in Greek means sort of like beyond or above. So like, for example, let's say you're doing philosophy academic philosophy and there are certain ground rules there are certain rules of the game and so within those rules which by the way eliminate any discussion of you know of God or the soul so if you're, if you're doing of course you can do philosophy of religion and sort of talk about it but uh, so within those rules they come to certain conclusions but if you say well let's philosophize about the rules Let's question the rules. That's not appreciated. That's not appreciated. In science, for example, sci to, be, to get a PhD in science, you don't take a course in epistemology. You don't even take a course in philosophy of science. So scientists tend to be completely blind to all the phil philosophical assumptions they're making in the process of interpreting data. Because if you have certain data, that's science. You, know, you just get data. But to interpret the data and to say, I've proved this or I've disproved that, it gets into philosophy of science, it gets into epistemology, and they don't study that. So it's not just something about religious movements. I mean, academia tends to be extremely inbred, incestuous. So let's say you want to get a job in an academic department. You have to agree with whatever, you, they don't hire people that have very different views. They hire people that think like them. And this is a very famous characteristic of academic departments. So, anyway, um, so there I was. I was a young man, and it was working. I was told, you know, I, I had no analytic tools, nothing like history of religion, social science, although I'd been, you know, very, very good at those things before I joined the movement. It's just there are things that you leave behind at the door, like, you know, don't bring your frozen hamburgers and don't bring your social science. <laughs> so there I was, plus it was working. You, so again, no one questions success. And then um, my life changed. For a while, everything was just up, 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 up. Everything was working. Prabhupada left this world and I found myself being a guru. I was, I was a guru. And because Prabhupada had just been with us and no one had any other concept of a guru except Prabhupada. I mean, no one had any other bona fide idea of what a guru is. Therefore, these gurus were treated in a very reverential way. Several of them had, you know, a little, hit a little bump in the road. And um, so then, when, 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 when that system sort of collapsed, that, that particular way of doing a guru system, and
and it's that's when I started. And I think, looking in retrospect, it was really Krishna. I, I have no doubt that it was Krishna's plan to somehow emotionally separate me, somehow get me to think again. And so when, so if you're in a movement and everything you do, everyone loves you, everything loves what you, everybody loves what you do, you're you know a big conquering hero everywhere you go. It's like I'm not going to question this. This is great. It's working for me emotionally. It's working for the movement. We're growing. Everyone loves me. I'm not going to mess with that. But then when things change and suddenly you feel like you're betrayed or you feel like you have been unfairly dealt with, at that point, the human mind, you know, it can start to think again. And you don't want to blindly accept what people say when those people are not necessarily acting as your friends. And so, and so I think, you know, you can, I think it was Krishna, it was just Krishna's arrangement that one stage is like you, you st sort of, I have to necessarily detach myself emotionally, not leave ISKCON, not, you know, give up my service to Prabhupada, but on an emotional level, just start to emotionally distance myself because it's not working. It's actually becoming it's it's actually becoming a threat to my emotional well-being, and therefore I have to create some space so that I'm not emotionally damaged by these people. I mean, you understand what I'm saying. This is Harish. So, <laughs> so Krishna, it was, it was it was like this various steps in the program. One step was detachment, so I wasn't just sort of blindly following. And the next step was uh, I needed the analytic tools. So in 1991, Krishna personally sent me back to the university. And it really was Krishna personally. I mean, I could go into all the stories, but it really was Krishna personally. He just took me and put me in the university. And uh, I felt, frankly, myself, because of my own nature, sort of somewhat intellectual, I felt like a starving man that finally gets a meal. I mean, not that I was, I mean, obviously we had, we had the Bhagavad Gita, we had the Srimad Bhagavatam. I wasn't starving for spiritual knowledge. I didn't go to the university to find out what God is or to find out about the soul. But in terms of finding out what is really going on in this world, what is the human condition? And how does the human condition affect a religious institution? How much of what goes on in a religious institution is divine and spiritual? And how much is just human? And which part of that human stuff is good and which part of that human stuff is not good? So, anyway, all these things were going on. All these things were going on. But at that time, I had no intention of starting anything like Krishna West for the simple reason that I thought never again will I become a public leader in a religious institution because I had such a bad experience, just to be honest, I had such a bad experience. And I, I will you know, not drive you to suicide by telling you all the details, but... I had such a bad experience that it was just unthinkable for me. I mean, it was unthinkable that I'm not going to 
re-traumatize myself. I'm, I'm not going to do that again. It was just, I couldn't even, I literally could not think about it. And so therefore, but it was a lot of fun to criticize other people. That's always, you know, it's one of the great pleasures of this world. And so, so I started, um, I started asking this question. It wasn't the Krishna West hullabaloo. It was um, just asking the question, what is Vedic? Somehow, I th because, because as Krishna took me away from, from the temples, I wasn't, you know, again, I was in the Hare Krishna movement. I was still a member of the institution, but I wasn't living in the temples because I couldn't live in temples because they were almost hostile to me because I was one of the Fab 11, uh, you know, because, I'd, because of my position. And so... Um, I mean, a lot of devotees liked me. I mean, it's not that I didn't have any friends. There were just there were lots and lots of devotees that really appreciated what I was doing. But uh, the leaders, some of the leaders, tended to be uh, couldn't take it. So, you know, the Freudian superego. The Freudian superego is that you know, in, in Freud's scheme, I mean, Freud wasn't all bad. He was just a little psychotic when it came to religion, but. Actually, a professor in Boston, I think it was at Boston College, which is a really good university, um, did a, he took Freud's analytic methods and applied them to Freud's views on religion. And he proved that Freud's attitude toward religion was psychopathology, according to his own definitions. <laughs> so that was very interesting. But anyway, the, um, sort of like the, the interesting part of Freud, there's an ego, and, and for Freud, of course, the ego is not in the modern sense of being a proud or vain, being self-centered. It just means the I, the person. Ego is just the Greek pronoun, ani. It's just ani, ego, I. And uh, actually, the, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, I've explained this many times that the Sanskrit H often changes to European G, so it comes from a hum. A hum becomes ego. So, and then you have, you have the sort of the primitive side, like all of us have inside, maybe from our past animal lives or something, or maybe from seeing too many Terminator movies. But all of us have deep inside of us uh, kind of like this primitive part sort of the barbarian where you want something you just take it you're angry at someone you know you kill them and people even talk that way like i'll kill you i'm going to knock your teeth out Do they say it in hebrew things like that yeah yeah so of course you don't do it so why don't people i mean everyone has inside of them kind of what Prabhupada called the lower nature so why don't most people act upon it why don't we find that say in high schools that no one has any of their original teeth because, you know, everyone knocked out everyone else's teeth. And so, the reason is because there's a superego. There is society, whether it's your family, your community, the police, whatever it is. It's society that keeps you under control so you don't become overwhelmed by your own lower nature. And, of course, people who become... Uh, pathologically detached from society often commit horrible crimes 
or join religious movement. Anyways, that was a joke. So <laughs> that was a joke. Please don't form a committee to punish me. So. Can you give some examples? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for example, uh, well, I mean that that tragedy that just took place in Manchester. That tragedy that took place in Manchester. You can analyze it very easily in Freudian terms. That this crazy young person. It sort of cut all his ties with society in general, where society in general, with, with its, you know, with its rules and morality, had no authority over him. And so his new superego was a terrorist in Libya. That became his superego, and he became a hero by acting like a real demon. You know, by acting like the devil, he became a hero. So... Um, so it's very important you choose the right superego in that sense. Now for us, ultimately, you could say our ultimate superego in Freudian terms is our Sampradaya. You know, Krishna, the great Acharyas, which of course includes Prabhupada, the great, you know, the Shastras, that whole apparatus, that whole spiritual apparatus, which is called Sampradaya. Sampradaya... It means the whole tradition with the, the holy books, the teachers, and, and so on and so forth. So now, by Krishna's mercy, I, um, I never doubted that. I never doubted the Sampradaya. That remained very firm. I was very, you know, I was safe. I was very firmly attached to the Acharyas, including my own Guru Prabhupada, and Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, Bhagavatam. But, interestingly, there's a certain stage in life, maybe for a young devotee, where your relationship with the Sampradaya is mediated by another apparatus, which is a religious institution. A religious institution. And so, uh, and you'll even have sometimes, like you see, like among neophytes, like some uh, authority will say, you can't understand Prabhupada, you have to go through me, or, and so on and so forth, all these uh, interesting mantras. I mean, it is true that, let's say, a complete neophyte, a young devotee that just is like, a, as they say, a babe in the woods. You know, it's, it's like when you have a little baby. When you have a little baby, the baby has to be taken care of. And so... Someone can be a very young devotee that's very innocent and just needs to be told everything. But uh, we don't want to get locked into the Peter Pan syndrome. You know, I'll never grow up. I'll always be a child. And so, so I got to a certain point where because I was strongly connected to Prabhupada and because I understood that ISKCON is Prabhupada's mission, it doesn't belong to someone else, even if they don't know that. It actually belongs, to, it's Prabhupada's mission and therefore I was loyal to ISKCON because I was loyal to Prabhupada. However, that intermediary where in order for me to please Prabhupada I have to please another group of people or and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in this particular case the people who I was always trying to please, I realized these people have actually become uh, inimical to me in various ways. And therefore, I'm going to be a good citizen of ISKCON. I'm not going to be an anarchist. 
you know, like the guy with the coat and the little ticking bomb and everything. You know, I'm not going to be an anarchist. I'm going to be a good citizen of Prabhupada's movement, but I need to start thinking. I need to, I need to really start thinking. And, uh, of course, you know, Tamal Krishna did it before me in one sense because he was smashed before me. So, he, I mean, he, in a sense, had the same experience. It just happened years earlier. And then he went through that same process. So, and again, if you're a rational human being, if you're a rational human being, then you understand that as crazy as they may be sometimes, the world needs religious institutions. I mean, it's just a historical fact. Bhakti Siddhanta said, religious institutions are necessary evil. That's, that's the word he used. So, um, so for Prabhupada's sake, and for the sake of the world, I realized that the only rational choice on my part was to remain in ISKCON. As a rational human being, I realized that that was actually my duty. But at the same time, uh, because my, in, in a sense, because, because I was not getting all that positive feedback and reinforcement from certain echelons, of the Hare Krishna movement, I was living in, you know, a family property in Beverly Hills. It wasn't a huge mansion. It's funny. It's a very, it was a very nice place. It was a duplex. But when devotees around the world heard Beverly Hills, they had all these ideas. Oh, my God, this decadent so-called sannyasi living in this big mansion. It was actually a two-bedroom, two-bath duplex. Very nice. I mean, it was really nice. It was a really peaceful night. And, you know, Beverly Hills is really a nice town. I mean, just to live in because it's it's clean, everything's nice, and so on. But um, and so when you're living out there in the world, it it becomes you don't want to be seen as a freak. When you get a whole bunch of devotees together and they put on clothes that look very strange to most people, but they're all together, and the world is actually—I mean—they're the freaks. The karmis are the freaks. We're not the freaks. We are the only normal people in this city, and. You know, you get into that whole psychology. But when you're not with that group, where you can't, you know, everyone is telling everybody else that we're the only normal people, you actually have to face the world. And I think it's natural that in that situation, you don't want to be seen as a freak. Because you have to live with these people. They're your neighbors. Your neighbor isn't just the devotee next door who agrees with you that everyone in the world is crazy except us. You know, so you can't... You can't sort of, you know, protect yourself with that psychological mechanism. But by the way, today you can. With Facebook and all, this is exactly what happens. Everyone, even media, when you consume media, it's the what media you want to consume because you either add your friend or don't add him. And no one sees television in my age anymore, no one. Everybody sees, uh, not everything, commercials and news, everything goes through the media. And your world became, that's, that, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point, which also explains, I think, the declining test scores when they give intelligence tests. But, but, but I mean, fortunately, fortunately, and I really think I was fortunate, I dodged that bullet because I'm not on social media. But I don't mean to criticize or stigmatize or damage the self-esteem of people who are on social media, but... <laughs> so, but I mean, it's a good point. You're right. The world is changing. 
but 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 back then it was just it was a very different world there was no social media back then and so um I mean, it's inevitable. If you, if you live with a group, let's say if you live with a group of people, it can be just your neighbors. Like, for example, now I'm in Kesaria Or Krishnaria, or... <laughs> we even have in the golf course, I call it the Brindavan golf course. Because it's, it looks like Brindavan. We even have Shamkund and Radhakund in the golf course. <laughs> Do any of you know that golf course? There's two ponds. It's really beautiful. I mean... It, it really looks like Shamkund and Radhakund. But anyway, so, but if you, let me add one more philosophical point that I've explained before. And that is, according to our teachings, the more you advance in Krishna consciousness, the more you do not separate yourself from the world. Because it, and in fact, the more you're a neophyte, the more you separate yourself. For example, the Paramahansas, who are the topmost devotees, they see everyone as a devotee of Krishna. Here are the two extremes. You have like, like first, second, and third class devotees. So the first class devotee sees everyone as connected to Krishna. Everyone is a spirit soul. For example, let's say I have a brother and say, God forbid, my brother has some illness. He's still my brother. It's, it's not that because my brother has some illness or maybe even has a fever and is delirious, he's just as much my brother. So in the same way, if you're a first-class devotee, all the so-called fruitive workers... Um, just as they say, just through the F-bomb, you know, fruit of work or so. But if you're a first-class devotee, you see everyone in the world, all the non-devotees, as just, they're all devotees, they're all pure souls. They're just a little delirious right now, you know, because they're, they're attached to the material world. So they just, they've forgotten, but they're still my brothers and sisters. They're still pure souls. And they're still, they're still with Krishna. They just, they just forgot it for now. Whereas if you're a third-class devotee, Kanishta, Kanishta in Sanskrit literally means the lowest. One interesting linguistic point, if any of you are interested in linguistics, Here's an English-Sanskrit connection. And that is, in English, you make one of the, probably the main way you make the superlative of an adjective is by adding st. Like, for example, fine, finest. Finer, finest. Finest, or loveliest, or heaviest. Heaviest. And that comes from Sanskrit, actually. So Sanskrit, you make the superlative degree with st. So, for example, kanishta, lowest. So the st in kanishta or garishta, guru, means heavy. I've lost some weight. <laughs> guru means, guru means, Sanskrit means overweight. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's her fault she's cooking. So, guru... <laughs> <laughs> guru means heavy, 
And Gariyan, which you may have heard from the Bhagavatam, means heavier, or very heavy, and Gurishta means heaviest. So anyway, Kanishta, Kanishta means uh, lowest. And a Kanishta Adhikari doesn't see anyone really connected to Krishna. He only sees the deity. And we all love the deity, but the Archayam Eva, whoops, Haraye Pujan Yaksha Dayate, the Kanishta, the, literally the Bhagavatam says a devotee on the material platform, not even really on the spiritual platform, has faith in the deity and worships the deity, but cannot see that same deity in the heart of every living being. And so therefore cannot see that every living body is a temple as much as any other temple. Every living body is actually a temple. And every soul is dear to Krishna. So, if, and Krishna says, better than just offering me dravya, it's like, you know, incense, water, which we should do. I'm not saying don't do it. You know, I'm afraid everything I say may launch another committee <laughs> to investigate me. So, what is it like Helen? Helen of Troy is called the face that launched a thousand ships. So, I'm the, uh, the preacher that launched a thousand committees. <laughs> investigative committees. Anyway, so so the, the Kanista, the lowest devotee on the material platform uh, only is devoted to Krishna. Does not really make deep friendships with other devotees. Uh, certainly does not think much of non-devotees. Now the Madhyam, the one in the middle, Madhyam, middle, devotee um, of course, sees Krishna as God and makes real friendship, not, not just superficial, but real friendship with other devotees. That's why um, this community is, is such a wonderful Vaishnava community. Because, you know, starting from the leaders, Barshabhanavi and Gunavatar, uh, it's a community where there's really, it's a model of Vaishnava relationships, of friendship, people really care about each other. And so, it's a um, it's an outstanding Vaishnav community, which I tell everybody everywhere I go. So, so a Madhyam, and Prabhupada said, in order to really participate in the Sankirtan movement, you need to be at least on the Madhyam platform. A Madhyam makes friends, real friendship with devotees, and is merciful toward non-devotees. Really cares about them. So, if there's something I'm doing which makes it difficult for you to connect to me because it makes you think that I'm weird, and if, if the thing that's bothering you is superficial, it's not one of the basic principles of bhakti yoga, then I'm going to change it. Why? Because I care about you. It's like in a relationship, you know, if a guy and a girl are together and, uh, you know, if, if the girl says, you know, I'm allergic to that cologne you're wearing, oh really? Well, I'm sorry, but I really like that cologne, so you're going to have to get over it or you're going to have to take some medicine for that. <laughs> when people really care about each other, they're, they're happy. They're happy to make any adjustment necessary I mean, you know, not like cut off three of your fingers or 
or, or you know, rob a bank. I mean, we're talking about things that are superficial, that don't matter. It's not important. Then if you love someone, of course I'll do that. I'm happy to make that adjustment because I care about you and, and, and why should I care about that? I care about you a thousand times more than I care about that superficial thing. So if we care about the world, if we really understand, as Krishna says twice in the Gita and Arjuna says once, that Krishna is the father and the mother of the universe, if we understand there's only one family in the universe ultimately, there's only really one family in the universe, which is everybody, because everyone is part of Krishna, then I'll do anything, you know, anything that I can do that's, that's possible for me, if, if like you say, okay, if you can, you know, win the 100-yard dash in the Olympics, then I'll join the Hare Krishna movement. I, can't, I, can, I can drive that fast. If I can use like a... Anyway. So, I mean, there's certain things we just can't do. But if it's something I can do, it's something which is not important, then helping someone come to Krishna is a million times more important than some superficial thing, if it's superficial to me, what Prabhupada called a dead thing, it's Prabhupada, direct quote from Prabhupada, a dead thing, my clothes. So that, so that if I can make some adjustment in the way I present myself and it's going to save souls, of course I'll do it because I care about them. Because I care about them and therefore I, I'm happy to make any adjustment I can which is possible for me, which doesn't threaten me materially or spiritually. It's not something which is actually, you know, poses some serious risk to my mental or physical or spiritual well-being. It's just some superficial thing. Of course I'm going to adjust that. So that's what it means. That's what compassion is. That's what it means to care about people. And, and then, of course, you avoid people that are just really demons. People that really just hate Krishna, you just avoid them. So, do you avoid them? Do they not have any chance at all? Uh, they're going to have less chance if I don't avoid them. I mean, maybe I can give them like some prasadam or. Because if they commit more offenses, they're actually digging themselves deeper. I mean, if someone, if someone will accept my help, if someone will, is willing, for example, to talk about Krishna or willing to eat prasadam, knowing it's prasadam, then it's not a demon. I mean, we're talking about people that really just hate Krishna. I mean, real hatred. And like in America, there are very, very few of those people. I mean, you can go years and never meet a person like that. So I would say that like in America, almost everyone is just sort of innocent. That's what Prabhupada said. So, what was I saying? So, um, anyway, my own journey, sound like Radhanaswami, the journey home. So, <laughs> he's a very good friend of mine. So, um, it was Krishna's plan. Prabhupada, some, as I say, Prabhupada, I was very fortunate. Somehow Prabhupada, despite the fact that I always felt like an idiot in Prabhupada's presence, but somehow or other, he always, he used to say a lot that I was very intelligent. He didn't say Yiddish Akov, but um, Prabhupada didn't speak Yiddish, but 
it was something like that. It was <laughs> so. Um, so, like I said, he trusted me. I used to when I used to see Prabhupada, he used to tell me things. He wanted to tell me things because he felt that I would understand him and uh, and that I would do something about it. And he told me things he didn't say to everyone. Again, it's not like I have some secret knowledge. I'm not trying to turn this into a Gnostic gathering or something. It's not some kind of secret knowledge. But there are things that Prabhupada said here and there, but with me, he really emphasized it. He really emphasized it. And so, so Krishna empowered me. I mean, Krishna, what can I say? Krishna empowers everyone in different ways. But Krishna really pushed me to start thinking and to start analyzing and then I first started asking the question what is Vedic like because I didn't when I was living in you know in Beverly Hills uh, I didn't want to go in the street I, I got to a point I actually had a moment like a it was a particular moment where I just thought I cannot walk out the door one more time and have everyone staring at me I just can't do that again now, some people don't mind. Some people glory in it. Some people love to have the world staring at them. And I mean, people have different psychologies. Personally, this is just my own personal psychology. I got to a point where after all these years, I couldn't take one more day of having people think I was a freak. I just couldn't take one more day of it. That's the reason that I put that in Vandana. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's why I wear a dhoti in Mayapur, so they don't crucify me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't start a riot, which apparently is not very difficult to start in Mayapur. So, but I mean, again, I, and I'm, you know, I'm giving a disclaimer here. This is my personal psychology. There are a lot of people like me in the Hare Krishna movement, but not everyone. There are people that, you know, they're different. They're comfortable. But personally, uh, I felt a need, which I think was strategic as well as personal, to somehow be accepted by society. I felt that I can't really seriously deal with the world if the world is laughing at me every time I walk out the door. Guru is Pari Prashnena. Prashna means a question. Pari, which is... Uh, same as the Greek peri, like perimeter, like the perimeter, measuring, meter means measure. Meter in, in or metric, meter in, in, from the Greek is just Sanskrit matra, same word. So perimeter, perimeter is just parimatra, the around measurement. So, and that's the, that's the prefix Krishna uses. Krishna doesn't merely say, go to the guru and just, you know, harass him with questions. What Krishna says is, pari prashna, thorough, complete. You have to, I mean, obviously, don't ask something you already know, just, you know, be, to make yourself a nuisance. But the point is, if you really need to know something, then you have to ask. You have to do pari prashna. Ask all around, all the points, complete. So in Sanskrit, it's like saying complete, like a, a complete questioning. And Prabhupada encouraged me to do that. In various ways, Prabhupada encouraged me to ask questions, to analyze. He told me that in order, he wanted me 
to present Krishna consciousness to educated people, but in order to do that, I had to be educated. He meant in, in the sense of going to the university. I had to be educated. And he, um, he told me, encouraged me to engage in philosophical speculation. This is Prabhupada's jargon. Mental speculation means, you know, doubting what Krishna says or doubting what Shastra says. Prabhupada gave me the example, Krishna said, I am the taste of water. So if you, if you question, is Krishna really the taste of water? Is Krishna God or not? That's mental speculation. If you accept what Krishna said, but then you ask, well, what does that mean? How is Krishna the taste of water? So I began to ask the question, what is Vedic? What is Vedic? Are these clothes really Vedic? And of course, the answer turned out to be no, not according to Shastra, not according to history. And what about other things? I, I began to question because I came to this movement not because I was lonely and looking for a warm, supportive community. I mean, that's not personally why I joined the Hare Krishna movement. I actually had lots of friends. And, um, you know, I was kind of a popular guy. I had lots of friends. I could tell good jokes. And um, so I, I, that's not, I mean, it is a great way to bring people to Krishna. People need that friendship from devotees. And if the devotees, that's our tradition. And if the, if the devotees had not been kind to me, then I probably, I probably wouldn't have joined the community. So that kindness, that friendship is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So I was looking for a spiritual science. I didn't want another religion. You know, I had a religion. I was born Jewish and I felt I have a religion. I don't need a religion. I'm not looking for a religion. What I'm looking for is a way to scientifically carry out the injunction of the religion I already have. Yeah, they have to eat. Right? How does it go? They have to eat. Yeah, which means love God with all your heart, soul, and might. And so I was thinking, well, how do you do that? First of all, as I, as I said last time, this is a rerun, but as I said last time, how do you love the unknown? I mean, the unknown is not really like seductive unless people are really seduced by a permanent state of ignorance. You know, some people find that kind of charming to be in a permanent state of ignorance, but, you know, let's say someone goes to a party. Obviously, we wouldn't do that because we are Hare Krishnas, but let's say if you, you know, sort of go back into your memory, your fruitive memories, and um, <laughs> so if you, if you go to a party and you meet someone that looks attractive, maybe you dance or something, but then as you get to know the person, if it turns out they are, let's say, like compulsively burp or something, or the person is clinically insane, or the person is um, like really stupid, like attractive, but really stupid. I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, you, you have to get to know somebody. And if you're attracted, you get to know them and you want to hear about them. Who are you? And tell me about yourself. And then the more you get to know them, if it's someone that you can really love, if it's someone that you can really love, and not just, you know, a mistake you made when you were drunk at the party, if it's someone, if it's someone that you can really love, 
then the more you know about them, the more you love them. There's that great song by the teddy bears. To know, no, no. You know that song? Oh my God, 25% of your life is away. So it's, anyway, the teddy bears, they were this great song, very late 50s. And they, it's, it's on YouTube. It's, <laughs> anyway, they, they, they had this super hit song way back then when most of you were in another body. They had this super hit song called To Know Him Is To Love Him. And I mean, think about that. To know him is to love him. The more you know, so when you meet a guy or a girl, the more you know about this person, you more, you, the more you love them. Not the more you know about them, the more you realize, uh-oh, this, this is not good. So, <laughs> I mean, that's the person that's for you. The person that, the more you know them, the more you love them. And so, the same is true with God. I mean, how, do you, how can you love ignorance? How can you love the unknown? How can you love the unknown? What does that even mean? Unknown literally means ignorance, isn't it? I mean, that's what the word means. So how can you love something you don't know? You love what you know. So, yeah, so again, I, you know, I was born in a religion. I liked it. I had a great time. And, um, and it, it inspired me. I mean, I, my first, like Prabhupada wrote a little book. When he first did the second canto, uh, they used to publish each chapter separately as a little book. And so the first one was called The First Steps in, in, in God-Realization or Self-Realization, something. And so I began my self-realization. I began my spiritual path in a synagogue. And I acquired all kinds of what we would say in this business, bona fide, you know, all kinds of real spiritual knowledge. I learned a lot of very important things about God that are actually true. And I was so inspired by that that um, I wanted to know more. So it's not a question like, I need another religion. It was the opposite. I have a religion. What I need is a spiritual science. I, and, that, and that's why to this day, I started my, uh, you know, glorious deviation, Krishna West, because... The whole idea is that I really just want a spiritual science. I really want a spiritual science. And um, a spiritual science, if it's valid, must be compatible with every religion. How could something be a real spiritual science and yet be incompatible with a real religion? It's logically impossible. And so, um, and in a sense, that's what I did. When I kind of started thinking again at a certain point in my life, I realized that uh, we need to really focus on the spiritual science, not all the ethnic details, not all the externals. We really need to get to the spiritual science because science is not Jewish or Hindu or Hare Krishna or Muslim or you know, Christian or Buddhist, or American, or Israeli, or Tanganyikan, which is what most people think. But anyway, it's, uh, you know, spiritual science, it's just science. It's like two and two or four. That's not an Israeli fact, it's not a Russian fact, it's not a Brazilian fact, it's just a fact. It's just, I mean, so real knowledge cannot be sectarian. 
Real knowledge is not ethnic, it's not, doesn't belong to this or that country, it's just knowledge. It's just knowledge. It's spiritual. I mean, Israel. Israel is this amazing country that is a leader in so many scientific fields, technical fields. You know, there's a tremendous amount of brain power here. And uh, so even countries that may not want to be politically intimate with Israel, I think often for the wrong reasons, uh, you know, just for, I think, for foolish reasons, but they, um, but they want the technology. Sure, we'll take an Iron Dome. Yeah, I'll take one of those. Or, <laughs> so, I mean, Israel, it's funny. It's, it's, it's like, among other things, it's kind of like this Rod, Rajarshi country where there's like, you know, militarily very strong, but also this sort of Brahminical country, all, all this brain power. And, uh, all these scientific discoveries and technical discoveries in so many fields, whether it's agriculture or medicine, I mean, so many things. And what we find is that countries all around the world are very eager to get Israeli knowledge. Why? Because it's knowledge, because it's real. It's real science. It's real technology. It works. And so, Knowledge, science transcends sectarian considerations like I don't like your religion or I don't like your politics. It just, it goes above all that. So the, in my view, the Western world is not shopping around for a new ethnic tradition. That's really not happening. And it's really not going to happen. I mean, frankly, I think you can wait till hell freezes over, as they say, and Americans are not going to want to be Indians. <laughs> so if you're holding your breath, you are going to die before it happens. But I think you know, any rational society, whether it's Israel, whether it's America, whether it's you know, any country, they want science. If you've got real technology, if you've got something that really works, yeah, they'll buy it because it's science. Everybody wants science. Everybody wants technology. That's why I think that it is historically a major mistake. I mean, potentially, frankly, I think a fatal mistake to present Krishna consciousness as a big ethnic thing rather than presenting Krishna consciousness as a science, a spiritual science. Because if something really works, no one gives a damn where it came from. If I'm sick, God forbid, and my doctor tells me you need to take this medicine, I don't care where it comes from. I don't even ask. The last, I don't care where that medicine was discovered, where it was manufactured, I really, truly don't care. I just want the medicine. And so if we present a pure spiritual science, as Harish is doing, actually, if we present a real spiritual science, the world will accept it. Yes, Gunavatarji. <coughs> 
maybe I can ask a question <coughs> back to, to Isco. <coughs> and uh, my question is, if you start thinking, <coughs> especially in terms of going to university and, and seeing things from meta, from above, it may hurt the absolutism of the founder of Isco that can alarm so many people because they, they may think that you are questioning the absolutism of the founder. Good point. Oops. Sorry. It's happy now. <laughs> so it's, it's, a very, it's a very good point. That's exactly what happens. Uh, unfortunately, I will have to take you on a very quick little journey through the sociology of religion. So if you're allergic to sociology, now is your time to leave the room. Anyway, so Max Weber, Max Weber is really like the father of the sociology of religion. He's like, he's like a great foundational figure. Irvard Deutsch. And um, he pointed out what is now accepted by everyone, really. That, you know, the idea of the charismatic founder of religion. I've explained this here, haven't I? The, the Greek word charisma, spelled with a K. They didn't, the Greek word charisma literally means something, almost exactly what we mean in, when we say in Sanskrit, Shakti Avesh. The idea that God has especially empowered someone. So whether it's a you know, Moses or a Jesus or a, a Prabhupada or you know, whatever. So Shakti Avesh. Shakti means power and Avesh means investing. Placing within. So, so that's charisma. That's what the word charisma means. You know, in, in this sociological Greek sense. So a charismatic leader is a leader. It's very interesting because so, the social scientists describe it neutrally. They don't say that someone that has that power but is perceived as having that power. That way they stay neutral. But a charismatic leader in, in, in sociological terms is a leader who is perceived by the followers as having a special divine gift such that that person has a unique ability to speak for God, to communicate to us the thinking and the, and the desires of God, and therefore, that charismatic leader has the highest authority in this world. And so, so it's interesting because like, for example, Prabhupada, Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. There's, there's the Guru, their previous gurus, there's previous teachers, and there's the scriptures. And it's like checks and balances. But of course, in this con, it's very, it's, it's very common to say, you can't understand scriptures except through Prabhupada. Or you can't understand the previous teachers, isn't it? Except through Prabhupada. And so the system is sort of collapsed into a single authority. Now, I mean, it's understandable why that was done, but it's something that has to be thought about. Then, now what happens is that most devotees, when Prabhupada was here, were attached to Prabhupada's external presence. You know, the Prabhupada you saw, the Prabhupada in all the pictures, the Prabhupada you hear in the lectures. So, 
Well, actually, especially the one you saw. So, I mean, you see, I'll, I'll give you two examples of this. Again, uh, I'm, you know, taking the very bold step of actually trying to be rational with other devotees. But if you go to Vyas Puja events, you know, for Prabhupada's birthday, Prabhupada's appearance date, around the world, I'm not talking about Israel because I've never been to one in Israel, but if you go to these events in America or almost anywhere I've gone, it's very common that it's people tell anecdotes, they tell stories. It's, it's, very, it's, it's, very, it's much less common to hear Prabhupada intelligently glorified as a philosopher or to talk about Prabhupada's missionary goals and to what extent are we achieving them, to what extent are we not achieving them, what does Prabhupada need us to do now, like where do we really stand, is this really working in the Western world, for example? You don't hear that very often. Anecdotes. Yeah, once I was with Prabhupada and, you know, he said this and then someone else said that. And so Prabhupada, of course, talked about Vani and Vapu. Vani means the message of the teacher and Vapu means his external form. And Prabhupada said, Vani is much more important. We have to become attached to the teaching, the, 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 the message of the Guru. And yet, anyway, when Prabhupada was here, he used to complain frequently that many or most of his disciples didn't read his books. I mean, first of all, how many young people, how many older people are in the habit of reading dense theology? I mean, it's not like if you look at the bestseller list. I mean, when, when's the last time a theology book was on the bestseller list? So it's not something that people read normally. I mean, you, there's all these stories, like someone's coming to Krishna consciousness. You know, I was in a bus station, I was about to, I don't know, do something crazy, and then, you know, I saw a Back to Godhead magazine that was hanging from a light fixture, and I took it down, and then I read it, and, you know, there's all these stories how I came to Krishna consciousness. So, so when people are really suffering and really searching, yeah, then they read and they read or they read a book. But once they've got, okay, I've got it. I got it. I understand the philosophy. I, I know where I'm going now. So then, you know, they're not so eager to read after that. That's common. And of course, another proof is that when Prabhupada left, when his physical presence was gone, gradually within a relatively short time, you can say 10 or 15 years, uh, maybe, yeah, I'd say within 15 years, uh, you know, how many of his disciples were still active in the mission? You know, maybe they followed, you know, the principles basically, or maybe they chanted some japa or go to the temple on Sunday, but how many, and then if you look at 20 years after Prabhupada's disappearance, 30 years later, how many of his disciples made a lifetime commitment specifically to the mission? To really, you know, okay, you have a family, you've got a job, understood, that's normal. But within that situation, how many are really, really actively take, like Prabhupada did. Prabhupada had five children. He had a, he had a big company, a, phar a pharmacy, and a factory. And yet he was active in the mission. So, so what happens? Going back to Max Weber, charisma. When the charismatic leader passes on, and that's inevitable. Then you get all these people 
who depended on that physical presence for their spiritual health, survival. They depended on something which is not there anymore. I mean, Prabhupada's present spiritually in his teachings, he's certainly present in his teachings, but as someone, you know, a human being walking around on earth, it's not there anymore, and yet that's what people depended on. You can see when they tell their, when they make their Vyas Puj offerings, and it's just anecdotes, after anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. And you can see by the fact of how many sort of gave up serious act of service. So what happens? I mean, so, so what do people do in that situation? Now, a lot of people that, that understandably want to save their spiritual life at some level, they, want, you know, they don't want to just completely get disconnected. And so there's a process which you see in every religion in the world. You see it in every religion in the world that when the charismatic leader passes on, uh, that charismatic leader is mythologized. It's very interesting because if you look at Prabhupada and his relationship with the devotees, you see this direct ratio, this direct proportion that the more personal association devotees had with Prabhupada, the less they mythologized him and the less personal association, you know, the more they mythologized him. So that, for example, if you read all those really great books about Prabhupada in the early days, like Makunda Goswami's book or um, Guru Das's book, I mean, really good books, and what you find is Prabhupada was Swamiji. Of course, later he became Prabhupada. But they had a, it was like a real personal human relationship with Prabhupada. They knew that Prabhupada's a pure devotee. They knew that Prabhupada was representing Krishna. They were following Prabhupada. And yet, for material things like how do we present the movement in, in this country or that country, Prabhupada just depended on them to figure it out. So that Prabhupada went to the Lower East Side, not because he knew everything about New York City, but because the devotees told him, this is where you should be. And then Prabhupada opened his second center. Of course, there was Montreal, and Prabhupada had to leave America because his visa ran out. But then he opened up a center in San Francisco, or his disciples said, why? Did Prabhupada know everything and Prabhupada understood that there's this amazing youth revolution going on in California and San Francisco? No. The devotees told him, Prabhupada, we need to be in California. We need to be in San Francisco. Why did Prabhupada write that little, well, it's a purport to the Gita 529, the peace formula? Because the devotees told Prabhupada, you know, there's, well, Prabhupada saw there's all these peace movements going on. So Prabhupada said, okay, well here you can, you know, call this the peace formula. So, so you see Prabhupada acting as a pure devotee, giving complete spiritual guidance to the devotees, but in all kinds of material things, the devotees taking the lead, explaining to Prabhupada what has to be done. Obviously, there were limits. Like for example, if a devotee said, Prabhupada, we should all let our hair grow out long, and, you know, so the hippies will love us or something, you know, Prabhupada would say, no, we're not hippies. So, there, I mean, there were, there, were, there, were, there were boundaries. But if what you proposed to Prabhupada did not threaten anyone's spiritual life, it, it didn't make us unrespectable in society, Prabhupada followed his disciples. 
But then, then as the movement grows very quickly and probably becomes more and more remote, you see the change was very quick in ISKCON. I mean, literally, there's a time when everyone in the movement personally knows Prabhupada. And Prabhupada personally knows very well everyone in the movement. And so he's just Prabhupada. You know, they don't have to mythology. But then the movement grew so quickly that literally within a few years, probably within like maybe three, three to four years, you go from a situation where everyone in ISKCON personally knows Prabhupada and they personally know him to a situation where very few devotees, a very small percentage of devotees in ISKCON know Prabhupada and he personally knows a very small percentage of devotees. And then you start to get all these, you know, Prabhupada, the omniscient being, Prabhupada who's sort of like the external super soul, literally, like he actually knows everything. So anything Prabhupada says, whether it's a cure for the common cold, or it's, you know, any comment on anything, maybe a comment on World War II, anything Prabhupada says is perfect and absolute because he knows everything and he's infallible on material things. And what's interesting is that Prabhupada rejected that. He explicitly said, that's nonsense. He explicitly said that's nonsense, and yet something which Prabhupada said is nonsense has become almost like a default belief. Something that Prabhupada rejected. And so, in Prabhupada's physical absence, and Prabhupada's physical absence began before he left this world. Because by the early, you know, 72, 73, if you joined the Hare Krishna movement, you might never see Prabhupada. Or you might see him from a distance in a, in a big room with, you know, a thousand people in it. And you would certainly never have a personal conversation with Prabhupada. So the whole psycholo psychological dynamic really shifted. And you get this thing where because Prabhupada's not here, he, you know, and, and, and so, for example, you get a Prabhupada who is very conservative and is, you know, really, really concerned that everyone dress a certain way and that no one dress a different way, when in fact, that's not true. Prabhupada personally told me it wasn't true. He's personally told lots of people. I've written papers with pages of Prabhupada quotes where Prabhupada says the opposite. And so... What I'm trying to do, in my own uniquely humble way, which you probably all noticed, right? You all noticed that I'm really a humble person. So, um, it's like a garden. You know, Lord Chaitanya said that when the, when you plant the seed of devotion in your heart, it's like like a, like a devotional creeper that plant, and you have to weed it. Weeds grow. Weeds don't only grow in individual gardens, they grow in collective community gardens. And so periodically every spiritual movement has to get the weeds out. And the weeds are things like mythology, uh, superstition, fanaticism. So, I mean that's what Tamal Krishna was doing, Tamal Krishna Goswami. What we're really trying to do is get back to a pure spiritual science. So, to answer your question, 
It was building up inside of me for, oh, I don't know how long. <laughs> I grew up with the Beach Boys. So, so that's, um, yeah. Yes. Another, another question. Yes. What's that? Too late. Too late? <laughs> what time is it? 8.25. Oh my. One more? <laughs> no, no, maybe she's right because, because it's a complex question. Okay. I got a simple one. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book? Yes. Oh, do we have it here? Yes. 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 Oh, where is it? Ordered by Amazon. Oh, yeah. Where is it? Yeah, bring, bring your book. I'm, I'm, okay, I, this is a, a warning. I'm about to do a, an infomercial, as they say it. <laughs> Ready? Hi, my name is H.D. Goswami. And I'm offering you this book today for less than you think. But, and if you buy it tonight, I'm going to person, no. But wait, call now. <laughs> so one, one, one detail. Venu Gita, we will have to take that out. What, yes. It is here for sale, but we, uh, we, we hope that people will uh, pay sufficient for this book so that we can print the new, trans new translation. Oh, yeah, where's Tulsi? Is Tulsi here? She's translating the Gita. She translated the Gita, and we, are, we, we want to uh, print it in a very respectable uh, yeah. way. So that it can be distributed, and therefore we hope Whoops. for maximum. Here's a happy book. book. Oh, I offer my sincere thanks to you for kindly helping me to publish Probably my book. Oh yeah. Few copies. Yeah, it's for people that pre-ordered. Um, I was invited several times to give a, a week-long series of lectures at a uh, Shivananda, the Bahamas. Uh, yeah, popular yoga center, actually managed by Israelis. And um, nice people, very nice people. And so I gave a week-long seminar. I think it was like two lectures a day, like two lectures a day for a week on the Mahabharata and it was aimed at people that knew nothing about the Mahabharata so then a, a very dear godbrother of mine is my editor Aja he um, he edited this and, uh, and now it's published so it's called Quest for Justice because Mahabharata is famous as a Dharma Shastra and Dharma is the Sanskrit word for justice so Krishna actually says in the Gita he comes to this world to reestablish justice Can I read you the first paragraph? Please. I haven't read this before, actually. I mean, since I spoke it, I have no idea what I said. But I was sober, and um, <laughs> so I think I should be Krishna conscious. <laughs> so, um, thousands of years ago, according to ancient sources, a series of extraordinary events took place that transformed our world both culturally and spiritually, and carried consequences that stretched far beyond this planet. 
Indeed, these events were so singular and powerful that great brahmanas described them to their students, parents taught them to their children, and wandering sages, bards, traveled from village to village narrating what had happened. Thus passing from one generation to another, these narrations were eventually preserved as text and remain accessible even today, known as the Mahabharata. It is this Mahabharata that will be the focus of our attention twice a day for the next week. Uh, we can start by exploring the Sanskrit term avatara. All spiritual paths begin with the assumption that the world as ordinarily perceived is not the highest truth. They begin by assuming that there are profound, inconceivable, wonderful truths about the universe and things beyond that, which can only be understood in higher states of consciousness. In this way, uh, spiritual paths lead upward, and thus the avatar is one who crosses down. It is sometimes God himself, and sometimes it is a very great soul, but the avatar always descends from that higher plane to ours, bringing guidance, strength, light, and restoration. The suffix tara, crossing, in avatar, comes from the same Sanskrit root as the word tirtha, which means a sacred place of pilgrimage, a place one commonly visits for spiritual inspiration and renewal. The idea is that when either God or a highly elevated soul crosses down to our world, wherever that avatar lands or lives or performs activities, becomes a place of pilgrimage, Matirtha. This is because the avatar opens a channel between our world and that higher plane. Thus, while visiting a holy place, we can, in a sense, ascend, experience the divine through that same channel. This explains why holy places are called Tirthas, crossing, as well as the linguistic connection between Tirtha and Avatara. Want to hear a little more? <laughs> now, according to the Mahabharata, it was no ordinary Avatar that descended to our plane thousands of years ago. It was actually the Avatari, which means the source of all Avataras. When, for example, this Avatari briefly spoke to Arjuna, his teachings became the Bhagavad Gita, perhaps the greatest spiritual work to come out of the East and certainly one of the most famous texts in the world. Of course, that avatari, that speaker of the Gita, is Krishna. There's a footnote. Anyway, I won't read the footnote. In fact, Krishna's descent to this world was so significant that another avatar, Bhagavan Vyasa, came down simply to record what was happening. Veda Vyasa, as he's also known, is extremely famous within Indian civilization as the author of both the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Purana. He also divided and organized the Vedas for the present age and personally participated in the events he described. In other words, he was not only the observer, the witness, and the documenter, he was integrally, integrally involved in his own narrative, integrally. And the story he told of those immortal events was called the Mahavarata. The Sanskrit word maha means great. From this, by the way, we have the well-known Latin word magna, as in magnify or magnificent. 
So Magna Bharata also works. I put Bharata is the ancient name of India, but not necessarily the India of today. Today's India is a modern political invention, whereas the principal region in which the Mahabharata's events took place stretches from Afghanistan in the west all the way to Bengal or perhaps even Burma in the east. So this narrative took place over a vast area known as Bharata, and to this day, India bears that name, especially among members of the Indian population. Let's now turn to the text itself. What is the Mahabharata? When, where, and how was it composed? And how did it come down to us today? That is a whole story in itself. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <coughs> so you can see it's actually meant for just the public in general. <laughs> 